Well, given that we recently looked at the triumphal entry in John 12 uh, in our sermon series in John's Gospel, uh, today, this Palm Sunday, uh, we're going to look at what the triumphal entry was an entrance into. Because Jesus' entry into Jerusalem marked the last leg of his journey to the cross. A day that the king was crowned, enrobed, and lifted up. But not in the way that the people expected. Though in a much more profound way than anyone could ever have imagined. Now, this morning as we enter Holy Week, we're going to focus on the cross of Christ, our text being Mark chapter 15. And if you're using the Bible under the chair in front of you, you will find that beginning on page 852. And today we enter into the darkest moment in all of human history, uh, the crucifixion and death of Jesus, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, abandoned by God. The Son of God, forsaken by His Father. And what about you? Do, do you know the pain of being abandoned and forsaken? Have you, ever, have you ever been rejected or betrayed? You know, probably all of us know times of feeling isolated and alone, Many of you have known suffering, and even now know suffering so deep that at times you feel like you're suffocating. And for any of us at any point, we might cry out, God, where are you? Where are you in the midst of my pain and my suffering? And our passage today speaks into that question. We come to the most excruciating place of pain in the entire Bible. Uh, which is heard in the haunting cry from the cross, uh, often referred to as the cry of dereliction. Uh, found here in Mark uh, is the last words he records that Jesus speaks before his death. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so this morning together we come to the foot of the cross and we come to witness the crucifixion, the dying, the death of Jesus. Again, Mark chapter 15, and specifically I'll be reading verses 1 through 5 and 12 through 39. Uh, but let's first pray before we hear God's word. Lord God, uh, we, we come before you this morning uh, needing you to awaken us, needing you to awaken our hearts and our minds to the darkness and the power and the beauty of the cross. And we confess that it's a story that on the one hand we're, we're very familiar with, on the, on the other hand maybe not familiar enough, but, but either way that it's, it's a difficult story and so much of the time we'd rather just skip straight to the resurrection. And so we pray that you would meet us now, that you would, by the power of your Spirit, open us to your word and your word to us, that we might see and believe in Jesus. Amen. And so Mark chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. Hear the word of God. 
And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Verse 12. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail! Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. 
And this is the Word of God. Well, today as we enter into this dark story, we're going to consider our passage in two parts. Uh, Forsaken at the cross and freedom at the cross. Forsaken at the cross and freedom at the cross. And so first, forsaken at the cross. And if you know anything about it, you may know that Roman crucifixion was designed to be the most humiliating, excruciating, gruesome method of execution. The Romans reserved it, reserved it for their worst offenders. It was a, a bloody and public spectacle, uh, one of extreme pain, often lasting for days, and ending in horrible death by hypovolemic shock or exhaustion asphyxia. Now, Mark does not give the gory details, uh, neither will I. Uh, you can find a medical report detailing Roman crucifixion in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Uh, it's dated March 21st, 1986. Uh, in fact, you can simply find this report uh, by searching for it online by its title, On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's a, a fascinating read. I, I commend it to you, uh, but I must warn you, it is uh, a detailed and difficult read. Again, Mark does not give the gory details of the crucifixion. Uh, rather, in the words of one commentator, Mark aims his spotlight away from the physical horrors of Jesus' ordeal in order to focus it on the deeper meaning behind the events. Mark makes no explicit reference to the fulfillment of prophecy, but his choice of wording here shows that he has Psalm 22 in mind. The very psalm Jesus quotes in his cry from the cross. Hear these words from Psalm 22. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among themselves and cast lots for my clothing. So you can clearly hear the echo of prophecy being fulfilled. And also note that Jesus' death happened in the dark. In fact, all four gospel writers go to great length to show us that the central events of Jesus' death took place in the dark. The betrayal, I'm sorry, yeah, the betrayal uh, in the garden, it took place at night. Uh, the trial be uh, before the Jewish council, it took place at night. But now the actual moment of Jesus' death takes place at midday, and it's dark. Verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Uh, the sixth hour being 12 noon, the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And so between 12 and 3 in the afternoon, there was total darkness. 
When Jesus died in the middle of the day, it was as dark as night. Now, some have tried to write off this divine act, attributing it to natural uh, causes. But it, it could not have been an eclipse. Uh, that would have only lasted a few minutes anyway. Uh, plus, the Passover takes place at a full moon. Uh, it could not have been a windstorm kicking up enough dust to block out the sun because Passover takes place during the wet season. This darkness at midday was a divine act. And though Mark does not explain the significance of the darkness, he most assuredly assumed that his readers would make the connection between this darkness and this celebration of the Passover. And so think back to the Exodus for a moment, the Exodus from Egypt. There was the plague of darkness, God's uh, last word to Pharaoh before the angel of death struck Egypt, that being the, the plague of the firstborn. And only those covered by the shed blood of the Passover lamb were delivered from God's wrath. And now the Exodus is finding its ultimate fulfillment at the cross. Because here we find a plague of darkness right before the sacrifice of Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb. But now it's God's own firstborn who would die. And thus the cry of dereliction, the very first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is experiencing the crushing weight of sin. The crushing weight of being the sin bearer in the presence of a holy, sinless God. Jesus comes to God as a high priest, but without a substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of the people. For Jesus himself came as both priest and sacrifice. My God... My God, why have you forsaken me? Here, Jesus is drinking the cup of God's wrath, anticipated back in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there we saw the agony of anticipating that cup. But now we hear, we hear the agony as Jesus drinks of that cup. The excruciating anticipation in Gethsemane is now the excruciating reality of Golgotha. For the seriousness and ugliness of sin is being fully dealt with here at this moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From Gethsemane to Golgotha. Well, Sally Lloyd-Jones describes it well, uh, taking us back to the Garden of Gethsemane. So let's go back there. This is what she writes. The wind was picking up now, blowing clouds across the moon, shrouding the garden in darkness. Stay up with me, Jesus asked his friends. They said yes and waited under the olive trees, but they were tired and soon fell asleep. Jesus walked ahead, alone, 
into the dark. He needed to talk to his heavenly father. He knew it was time for him to die. They had planned it long ago, he and his father. Jesus was going to take the punishment for all the wrong things anybody had ever done or ever would do. Papa, Father, Jesus cried, and he fell to the ground. Is there any other way to get your children back, to heal their hearts, to get rid of the poison? But Jesus knew there was no other way. All the poison of sin was going to have to go into his own heart. God was going to pour into Jesus' heart all the sadness and brokenness in people's hearts. He was going to pour into Jesus' body all the sickness in people's bodies. God was going to have to blame his son for everything that had gone wrong. It would crush Jesus. But there was something else, something even more horrible. You see, when people ran away from God, they lost God. It was what happened when they ran away. Not being close to God was like a punishment. And Jesus, who had always been close to God, was now going to take that punishment. And Jesus understood what that meant. He was going to lose his father. And that, Jesus knew, would break his heart in two. Now, if after the service today, one of you came up to me and said, Camper, I'm done with you. I never want to see you again. That would hurt. It would hurt a lot. But if my wife, Heather, were to come up to me and to say, I am done with you. I never want to see you again. That would hurt so much more, so much deeper. Why? Because the longer and deeper the love, the greater the pain of its loss. And that's what Jesus is experiencing here. At the cross, Jesus' heart is being torn apart. One commentator states, This forsakenness, this loss, was between the Father and the Son, who had loved each other from all eternity. This love was infinitely long, absolutely perfect, and Jesus was losing it. Jesus, the maker of the world, was being unmade. Jesus was experiencing our judgment day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not a rhetorical question. Why? The answer is for you, for me, for us. Jesus was forsaken by the Father so that we would never have to be. The judgment that should fall on us fell instead on Jesus. Jesus, forsaken at the cross so that we could be set free. And that leads to our next point, freedom at the cross. Freedom at the cross, verses 37 to 39. Let me reread those. 
verse 37. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Jesus, crucified as a common criminal, and here this hardened, bloodied Roman soldier who had witnessed many, many executions over the years, he proclaims the central truth about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Truly, this man is the Son of God. And whereas sin had separated us from the presence of God, the death of God's own Son, the death of Jesus, tore down the wall that separates. And to make this perfectly clear, Mark records verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Mark is referring to the curtain that separates. The curtain that separates the holy, sinless God from unholy, sinful people. The curtain that separates the rest of the temple from the holy of holies, the most holy place. The curtain that separates the people from the presence of God. The curtain of the temple, 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, 12 inches thick. A dividing wall, communicating loud and clear that it is impossible for sinful people to come into the presence of a holy God. The Holy of Holies, separated by this great curtain, the Holy of Holies, the very heart of the temple, the place of God's presence and glory, and only one man, the high priest, could enter it. And then only once a year. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And even then he could only enter after an, an elaborate process of purification. And he had to bring a blood sacrifice, an atonement for the people's sin. And the high priest even then entered the Holy of Holies at great risk to his own life fearing that if he did not do things correctly, that the holiness of that place might consume him. In fact, there is historical evidence to suggest that a rope was tied around the high priest so that in case he died, he could be pulled out from underneath the curtain so that the other priests would not have to enter in. And the moment Jesus died, this massive curtain was torn open. It was ripped from top to bottom, making it crystal clear who did it. It was God's way of saying, this sacrifice of my son, this sacrifice of Jesus is the full and final sacrifice to end all sacrifices. It is finished. There is nothing else that needs to be done. Now the way is open. Now you are free. Free to enter in. 
free to approach me, free to know me. Again, Jesus was forsaken by the Father so that we would never have to be. The judgment that should fall on us fell instead on Jesus. And what good news for us. Because of Jesus' sacrificial death, anyone who believes in Him, who puts their trust in Him, can know God. Can know God personally, can enjoy His presence. Through faith in Jesus, the barrier is gone. No more alienation from God. No more bondage to sin. No more separation. Through faith in Jesus, there is true freedom. Freedom to be forgiven of sin. Freedom to enter into the presence of God. Freedom to live in the joy of every spiritual blessing we have in Christ. And one more thing before we conclude. Sin forgiven means that suffering does not have the last word. That suffering does not have the last word. Through the gospel, through the cross of Christ, we see that our God actually suffered. And that He actually cried out in suffering. And so I want you to think about those disciples that day at the foot of the cross. To them, Jesus' suffering seemed senseless. That there was nothing good about it. But eventually they realized that Jesus' suffering was of cosmic importance. They eventually realized that what they had seen was that they had witnessed the greatest expression of God's love, power, justice, mercy, and grace. The most amazing display of that in all of human history. That God had come into the world and suffered and died on a cross to set us free, to save us. They had witnessed the ultimate proof of God's love for us. Another pastor puts it this way. When you suffer, you may be completely in the dark about the reason for your own suffering. It may seem as senseless to you as Jesus' suffering seemed to his disciples. But the cross tells you what the reason is not. It can't be that God doesn't love you. It can't be that he has no plan for you. It can't be that he has abandoned you. The cross proves that he loves you and understands what it means to suffer and it demonstrates that God can be working in your life even when it seems like there is no rhyme or reason to what is happening. And so in your suffering, in your places of pain and fear and doubt and uncertainty, you are never alone. Never So let me end with this. Some of you know that each summer, uh, Dennis serves with short-term missions teams, uh, bringing the gospel to the Cherokee Nation in western North Carolina. 
Uh, and while there, the Cherokee people will sometimes share of the Cherokee youth's rite of passage. Each male youth is taken into the forest by his father. Uh, his father blindfolds him, sits him on a stump, and leaves him alone. And the boy is required to sit on that stump all night without removing the blindfold until the very first rays of the morning sun. And he cannot cry out for help. And should he survive, he cannot tell anyone of his experience. And so naturally, the boy is terrified. I mean, he can hear all kinds of noises. There are wild animals around him, fearful that maybe someone would, would sneak up and hurt him. Strong wind blowing through the trees. But he sits still, scared and unable to see. And finally, after that horrific dark night, the sun appears and he removes the blindfold. And it is then, and only then, that he sees his father sitting on a stump right next to him, where he had been all night keeping watch over his son and protecting him from harm. For Jesus, the Father wasn't there. So that for you and for me, he would always be there. Friends, we often sit on a stump, blinded by our own sin and brokenness, fearful, unable to see. But we are not alone. Never. For the Good Shepherd is with us. The Good Shepherd who laid down his life for us. And so even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you, you, Lord Jesus, are with me. And so brothers and sisters, as we look to the cross of Christ, this Passion Week, this Holy Week, and, and really always, let us hear and remember the promise of Jesus. He says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I am with you always. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our good shepherd, that you laid down your life for us. Thank you for being forsaken on our behalf so that we would never have to be. We thank you that you are always with us. And we ask now that you would that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to trust, even and especially in the dark. Amen.